Let's go now to Romans chapter 4. Uh, We are getting back to the book of Romans. Uh, We started uh, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, uh, a few months ago, and um, we took a break to look at the first couple of chapters of Luke. And this morning we are back to the book of Romans, and uh, this morning we're going to take the whole fourth chapter. Uh, So sit back and uh, let's see what what Paul has to say to us and what God has to say to us through uh, Paul and through his word this morning. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had, uh, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distress made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together.
Our great God, we pray this morning that Your Spirit would come in a mighty way and make us believers of the Gospel. Father, it's so encouraging to see that the believers of old needed to have the truth of Your Gospel, righteousness of Christ through faith, to be drilled into their heads and into their hearts repeatedly. And so, this morning, we pray that you would do the same for us. For we have held up idols. We have looked to other things. We have looked to people. We have looked to leaders to be our Savior in addition to and probably in place of Jesus. We've looked to the world. We've looked to pleasure. We've looked to ourselves. And we need to be saved, O God, this morning. Some of us need to be saved for the first time, to see the light of the glory of the hope of Christ for the first time. And I pray that that's exactly what would happen. And many more of us in this room need to be revived. (laughs) We need to be, in a sense, saved again. Not literally, but but experientially. We need to, to, to be refreshed by the truths of an imputed righteousness, forgiveness of sins, our sins, and Your love for us specifically through the specific work of Your Son, Jesus. Oh God, I need You this morning. I have no power to change my own heart, much less somebody else's. And so we pray that Your Spirit would come and You would teach us. You know us. You know what we need to hear. You know how we need to apply Your Word. So come as a skilled surgeon with your word, and would you cut sharply, but would you cut to heal us and not destroy us? Oh God, we wait on you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for hope beyond whatever we face. And we give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, Phil Robertson was reinstated back to the show Duck Dynasty after being suspended for comments made in a GQ magazine interview um, that he saw homosexuality as a sin. And right after that interview and after it broke in the news, uh, the left and the right and the rest of us dug in in our proverbial trenches. Uh, we all took sides and uh, we all kind of kind of dug in and, and thought through our position. And uh, the war began in, in social and written and televised media. And then in the midst of all of that, more of that interview came out. And, and uh, we, we heard Phil Robertson talk about his early days in Louisiana growing up as, quote, white trash, end quote, uh, on a farm. And, and him saying that the black people that were around him at that time just um, seemed happy and God-fearing and not entitled at all to anything. And they just rode the back of the trucks just singing. And he never saw any mistreatment of blacks in southern Louisiana. And that created another firestorm of of more threats of boycotts if A&E did this or A&E did that. And uh, Facebook blew up and Twitter blew up and the media blew up. And what was happening was a sacred cow, and actually several sacred cows, were being tarnished and being threatened. 
And I use that term sacred cow very intentionally. Because a sacred cow is something that we craft really in our image and we hold up on a pole to look at and say, justify me for who I am. And that's exactly what was happening when Israel uh, was, was waiting for Moses to come down off of Mount Sinai. They got tired of waiting and they assumed that he had been killed. And so they literally took gold and fashioned uh, that gold into the image of a calf, a beautiful golden shiny calf that they raised up on a pole. And Israel bowed down and danced and, and partied before and looked to as the very thing that was going to justify them. Phil Robertson, for many primarily white, southern, probably redneck hunting (laughs) men and women in churches across the South, stands as one who, who really represents them. He says the blessing at the end of a meal. He, he stands for family values. He's been married to his wife since they were 16 years old. And on and on and on you can go. And I think that there is a, a subculture of people that, that, that maybe not literally or maybe literally think that if everybody would just be the Robertson family, then the kingdom of God's kingdom would, would come on earth and His will would be done forever and ever. Amen. As it is in heaven. The effect of this whole deal was to win no one to Jesus, probably, but to entrench those who were skeptical at the beginning deeper in their skepticism as they not only heard from a Christian voice, but they also watched the church deal with it. And those of us who are Christians and may not identify with this camouflage-wearing, bearded family um, finds ourselves in this, this odd position of identifying maybe more with, with those who don't call the name of Christ their Lord and Savior in the midst of, of this argument. And what we have is an absolute mess. If Phil Robertson is not your sacred cow, and I know he's not for many if not most in this room, I want you to hear me this morning that that doesn't mean that you don't have a sacred cow. It's just a different sacred cow. Uh, there are people that I could, I could rail on this morning that would touch a nerve in you and that would make you mad at me. Because all of us hold somebody up. All of us think there's, there's one person, there's somebody who, who just can't fall. I saw a, a Facebook blog this week about Mark Driscoll and accusing him of plagiarism. And my first reaction was, well, who is this probably small-town minister jealous of Mark Driscoll, you know, trying to tarnish his name? And turns out there's some, you know, in terms of tweets and things, Driscoll doesn't maybe give credit where credit is due and maybe doesn't footnote all his tweets, but who of us does? Uh, honestly speaking. I remember a dinner I had with a, a guy who worked with Tim Keller and formerly worked with Tim Keller and he began bashing Tim Keller and I just, I remember it felt like my world was crashing in around me. I'm like, what? how in the world can, can Tim, Tim Keller not walk on water? And we all have somebody. And you see, that's the point. As we come to chapter 4, Paul does this weird thing. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? 
And you go, what? I mean, there's no introduction to it. He just kind of throws out Abraham. Why? Because Abraham, to many, was the Phil Robertson of the church. Abraham was the Tim Keller of the church. Abraham was the Mark Driscoll of the church. Abraham was the Alabama or the Auburn or the Ole Miss or whatever your team is of the SEC and of college football. Abraham was it. And nobody could speak against Abraham. And it's interesting to see what Paul does. Paul brings him down. You see, Paul is in touch with with the people of the church of the day. And he says, guys, if your hope is in Abraham, then you are hopeless. Because even Abraham gained nothing before God through his obedience. And the church said, what? Why? It's it's so important that we get what what Paul was doing here. And so, let's kind of dig in here and see why Paul takes aim at Abraham. And the first thing that we have to see, or the first reason, is Paul understood that what you boast in, or rather who you boast in, is what you really trust in. What or who you boast in is what you're really trusting in. It doesn't matter who you say you're trusting in. It doesn't matter what your profession of faith is, but who you really boast in. That is who and what defines you and defines your, your community and defines your friendships. It's very, very powerful who you boast in, has huge implications to, to our community and the direction of our lives. Recently, I um, spent some time with a, a leader, a former elder of a church, and he has le- since left that church. And he has told me the story of his deep hurt by the pastor of that church. And in the midst of telling me the story, he said, Richard, if it wasn't for my wife and my children, I'd probably be taking a break from church right now. A leader had let him down. And he had become disillusioned. One of my best friends in all the world was converted, came to Christianity, came to Jesus in college through the ministry of a college campus minister. And there was, there was revival in the, in the midst of this uh, uh, college ministry. And many came to faith to Christ during that time. And, and this, this leader said, well, man, look at this. I'm going to start my own church. And, and most or many of these college students followed this leader. And he, he had this, this epiphany that, that Christian life should be lived in real community. And so he bought a farm in, um, in northern Colorado and, and, and he gathered um, as many of the college students that had been converted to come and live on that farm. And, and he uh, sold them this idea that, that they needed to, to work and pool their money and, so that they could um, fund missionaries all over the world and send missionaries out all over the world. And so uh, my, my best friend, for 16 years cooked baked goods at night with the others, delivered them like from 4 to 6 in the morning all across uh, the front range of Colorado from Fort Collins uh, to, to Denver to Colorado Springs and then worked those bakeries. They pooled their money for 16 years. He married a woman that, uh, that the, the leader pretty much told him was the, the woman that he should marry. 
They had four children together. Sixteen years until finally the whole thing blew apart and his eyes were opened. And he realized that this man that he had, he had entrusted with his life had led him astray. And when I met him in planning our church in Colorado, he was so disillusioned by Christian leaders and so disillusioned by church. It took me a year for, for us to, to develop a relationship and for him to open his heart to even come to church again. And friends, I could tell you this morning about Christian leaders that I trusted, that I held high, that I, I took their advice and who fell off of that throne, and I can look back and I can see have hurt me deeply and changed the direction of my life in many ways. And I know because I've talked to so many in this room who have had similar experiences. Uh, one I can think of in particular was uh, even uh, sexually assaulted by a minister. And you think about the pain of that, but dear friends, this is precisely why Paul is making the point that he's making. Because there is something in us to find someone that has finally found it. Someone that we can follow, that we can finally say, oh, they epitomize what church is to look like. And we see this movement of networks and Christian personalities rising up in small, smaller movements and larger national movements. And we see these new things and these new movements and people chasing after them. Some only to be disillusioned and all at some level to be disillusioned. And I see a whole host of other people reacting against that and saying, no, we're going to find something that's steeped in history. We're going back to Catholicism or we're going back to Anglicanism or we're going back to the Orthodox Church. But all of us are seeking the exact same thing. We want to hold something, someone, in addition to or in place of Jesus that will justify us and make us feel good about us. And what Paul is saying is, whatever it is that you're boasting in, that is what has the danger of destroying you and disillusioning your, your perceptions of Jesus and His church. Paul's question, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh, is brilliant. He attacks, in a sense, in a redemptive way. He attacks what people have done with Abraham. And he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now to us this morning, we can answer that question, what does, what does Abraham have to boast in easily? I mean, we've been around the gospel, most of us, long enough to say nothing. And that's easy, so let's just move on to the next point. No. Let me ask you this. Maybe it's not Abraham for you, but if you look at the church in Memphis, we are definitely boasting in something in addition to Jesus and possibly and probably in place of Jesus. You see, does, uh, does the... The one who um, senses he's righteous because his team is always winning. 
the one who senses he's righteous because he's finding success in the classroom as a teacher. The one who thinks he's righteous because he's succeeding in the workplace. The one who thinks he's righteous because he or she always has the guy or the girl. Do you have anything to gain? The answer is no, you don't. There's something deep in our nature that wants to hope and trust in someone or something because we are worshipers by nature. And what Paul is saying is don't boast in anything other than Jesus. And this word boasting that he used, this Greek word is kachima. It means to take pride in or to have extreme faith in. It's the same Greek word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 1.31 where he says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we act as if we don't understand what it means to boast in the Lord. And so we come to church and we, we half-heartedly worship and, and we half-heartedly toy with the Christian faith. But we're really boasting in something else, whether it's work or hobby or sports or beauty or fame or we're chasing after something that's going to redeem us other than Jesus. And what Paul says is quit your boasting in anything else but Jesus. And if you don't know what that looks like, then figure it out. (laughs) Ask somebody. Set your heart and your life on the direction of being determined to understand what it looks like to boast in Christ and in Christ alone. Because He's the only one that's not going to disappoint you. He's the only one that is not going to let you down. Why? Because His salvation rests upon His finished work for you. Isn't that beautiful? He will not let you down because He's not judging you based on your performance. He is judging you based on His own performance. And His work is finished. So boast in Christ, not in any Christian leader, and not in any worldly thing. And then secondly, Paul takes aim at Abraham because he he knows he has to get the church to understand that righteousness is an equal opportunity employer. That righteousness creates a whole different community. Let me explain it. Recently, a few months ago, I went to a book reading. I'd never been to a book reading before. That's kind of a highbrow event, um, you know, and, and I'd never been to one. I'd, I'd read the book. Okay, well, I read some of the book. I read half of the book, all right? And I went, and, and um, I didn't know many people there, and I'd never been in that social setting before. And so like any new social setting, you go in, you kind of observe and look around, kind of weigh things out. And so I I kind of got, I figured it out, okay. So I went, I got my little cup of wine and and there was a photo uh, exhibit of of pictures taken that depicted scenes from the book and and the historical places where the book, you know, the story uh, played out. And so I walked around the room and I I stared deeply and longedly, you know, into the picture and kind of put my hand like this and I I acted like, you know, I'm trying to put myself there. And then when uh, the author was was speaking and reading, I I listened intently and, you know, did the guttural sounds at the right moment. Mmm, yeah, yeah. 
and during the question and answer, I was really engaged, and I actually was. Well, it really was interesting, but uh, but I, you know, I was engaged and, and and not distracted. But I didn't dare ask a question because uh, this book was um, um, it dealt with and brought up a whole lot of um, issues of you know slavery and prejudice and oppression and and all that. And 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 to be honest with you, a white lady, uh, very you know, yell. Um, graduate and, and highly trained uh, lady wrote this book and it is an incredible book but um, you know as she's as other people are asking questions you know the questions that I probably would want to ask um, were more like you know hey while you're writing this book did you ever kind of do some you know some of the chapters while watching reruns of good times or you know something like that or um, you know if do you ever get tired I mean her character development of this book was just ridiculously impressive and I, you know it was hurting my brain trying to figure out how a white woman was telling the story of a black man in slavery. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. But as I'm, you know, I'd, I'd probably, uh, you know, want to ask the question, doesn't that hurt your brain? Don't you just want to be a checkout person at Target or something? I mean, all this time on this book. But I didn't. Why? Because I wanted the respect of the people in the room. And friends, it doesn't matter what the social setting is. It doesn't matter if it's guys in the hood hanging on the corner or going to the purple store, the yellow store. There's a whole culture there. And if a guy like me walks in and, you know, what's up, guys? I mean, I'm out of the culture. But it's the same in, with a group of lawyers or bankers around a conference table. There's a culture there. And the young bankers and the young lawyers and, and the legal people support team has to come in and you're quiet and you watch and you learn the social cues because the last thing you want to do is to stand out and look like a fool. And yet what Paul is saying here, it's interesting, he goes in, again, it means so little to us, but it meant everything to the church of that day. They totally would have gotten it. Is he goes into this monologue, this dialogue of the circumcised and the uncircumcised, and we're like, I mean, does anybody in here know who's circumcised or uncircumcised? Does anybody in here care? No! I mean, it has absolutely no relevance to us in our cultural setting. But what was going on in that day was this. The Jews, the circumcised, the fans of Abraham. I mean, they might let the Gentiles into the church, but come on, they're not going to get into leadership. They might let the, the Gentiles come into the church, maybe. But they're not going to really be at the very center of what's happening in that church. And what Paul is saying is this, what you believe about how you stand before God is righteous is everything. Because if you don't believe that you are saved solely through the finished work of Christ, and you're just a recipient of it through faith, then you do believe that there's something that can distinguish you in community, in the church, and make you feel better than others. And dear friends, that is the issue of the church. This is it. 
the whole Duck Dynasty thing, the whole whatever, the argument, the whole thing is the issue. How do we stand just and righteous before God? It's not because we're committed to family values or we don't drink or we do drink or we're, we, you know, we're very artistic and, and artsy in our church or we're very, you know, very uh, cutting edge or we're very high traditional and only liter- It's not any of that. It's that I stand righteous before God solely on the basis of Jesus coming and living under the law for me. And then becoming my sin on a cross and being condemned. And then through faith, He gets what I deserve and I get what He deserves. And from this point forward, I stand righteous before God based on nothing I do. Nothing makes me more righteous, not being Presbyterian or not being Presbyterian. Not believing in infant baptism or not believing in infant baptism. Not worshiping in a more contemporary way or worshiping in a... It doesn't matter whether I've lived on the street or I live in the nicest house in Memphis or the country. None of that matters. We are all alike in Christ. And this is to be a radically different community. Because in every other community there's a system to be promoted or demoted. But not in the church of Jesus. The only hero is Jesus Christ. Literally. <laughs> you say, yeah, but come on, I mean, how does the church work? If The only hero is Jesus Christ. I mean, it's what, it's what Jesus was saying when He said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, the one who is pursuing accolade is not the greatest, but the lowest. But the one who you don't even know about, who is serving Christ, who's finding their contentment in Jesus, they're the ones that are greatest, if you will, in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Paul asked the question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And for us, the answer is simple. But is it really that simple? You know, as I was starting the church, and I've told you this many times, but when I was starting this church and talking about the vision of a church where this is a reality in the community... Not just something we say amen to in a sermon, but literally our relationships change. That, that we're, we are having relationships with people outside of our social class. Relationships of respect. That, that, that we're, we're having relationships with people of a race uh, different than our own. And culturally different than our own. That we're living together and there's no distinction and, and, and Jesus really is the main uh, hero and the hero of the church. As I was casting that vision, I had uh, leaders from white churches and black churches both wagging their head at me, some of them wanting it to happen, but none of them thinking that it actually could. But why is that? Because they're horrible people? No, they're no more horrible than I am. And I'm no better than they are. But why is that? It's because we have bought a lie in the church today that says that Jesus is, is the Savior, but he, he can't be everything. We've got to have Jesus and our cultural comforts. 
we have got to have Jesus and our cultural similarities or we just can't work together. But the whole flow and the whole message of the gospel that Paul is getting at when he asks this question, is it just for the circumcised or is it for the uncircumcised too? His whole point there is, it is for both. It is for both because Abraham was the recipient of the promises before he was circumcised. Hallelujah! And why did God do that? Because God knows human nature. And He knew that one day, someday, people would boast in the reality or the fact that they were circumcised and their neighbor was not. And we do the same today. We boast in the fact that we have money, but they don't. We boast in the fact that we have a job, but they are welfare dependent. We boast in the fact that, uh, that, that you know, we wear nice, you know, put-together clothes and uh, they might wear saggy pants or whatever. And we all, however, <laughs> say and use the right terms that we believe in the gospel, but few actually flesh it out and say it doesn't. None of that matters. What really matters is who you are trusting in. And this is what Paul was getting at here. There's no way that I can overemphasize the absolute necessity that each one of us in this room identifies who and what we're trusting in addition to Jesus. Because whatever that is will become a point of contention in our relationships. And we will be working against the very prayer of Jesus that we might be one even as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And so repentance must be ongoing and you must this morning ask yourself the question, what basis other than the gospel am I trusting to make myself better than someone else? And then finally, Paul took a shot at Abraham because he wanted us to understand Abraham was as, only as great well, let me say it this way. Abraham was great to the extent he believed God for salvation. Abraham was great to the extent that he believed God for salvation. The only thing that made Abraham any different from anybody else is he had faith in the finished work of Christ, the Messiah. Rachel and I watch a movie this week. Um, you ever just stumble upon movies on Netflix and say, hey, let's check that one out. That's kind of what we did one night this week. And we watched this, this um, movie called October Baby. Uh, watch it. Great story. I'm not going to say it's the best put-together movie on the planet, but the story's unbelievable. Uh, really touched our hearts. And let me tell you a little bit about it. Let me ruin it for you. Um, basically, this teenage girl is having identity issues, and she finds out that she is the product of a botched abortion. And that's why she has so many health issues in her life. And, um, and she also finds out, therefore, that her parents, who she thought were her parents, are her adopted parents. And so she um, uh, heads out of town and um, in search of her, uh, her mom, her real mom, her birth biological mom, and finds her. And her birth mom is a lawyer now and uh, has a family of her own and wants to have nothing to do with her. And so she goes back dejected, won't even claim that she is her mother. She goes back home dejected. But then she happens upon this priest 
and uh, this priest tells her uh, the power of forgiveness and, and what non-forgiveness or being unforgiving does to our souls and our hearts. And he says, you need to, to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. And so she makes the trip back and she goes into the office of her biological mother and she leaves a note and all the note says is, I forgive you. And of course the mother comes in and she sees it and she melts in tears. And, you know, Rachel's crying. Okay, maybe I'm crying a little bit too. And the movie kind of comes to an end. And then all of a sudden there is an interview going on during the credits of the actress who played the lawyer mom in the movie. And I said, oh, that's kind of interesting. Let's, let's hear it. And she said, she said um, when the producers sent me the script, Right after I finished it, I threw it down and called him and I said, how do you know? How did you know? And he said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I was a law student and I got pregnant and I had an abortion. And I've not told anybody else about it. I've never been public with this story. And she said, when that scene, when she was acting, uh, she goes on to say she took the role and, you know, all of that. She says that during that scene, when she picked up the note that said, I forgive you, that when she melted into tears, it was a real moment for her. And it was a moment that God used right there on camera to say to her, I love you, you're forgiven in Christ, it, it, it's all covered, and you are my child. And as I listened to that, and I thought about my sermon for this week, and I thought about the whole purpose of the book of Romans, which is seen there in chapter 1 and 16 and 17, where Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. I said, that's why it's the power of God unto salvation. Because all of us live as sinners and live as those who have offended and been offended. We have all hurt people and we have all been hurt. We have all uh, done things to other people and other people have done things to us. And therefore, we all live with guilt and or anger and hurt. And what every human being needs is the message, you are forgiven. You are righteous You are at peace with God. He loves you. And there's nothing you can do to change that. It's all all taken care of. Because that's the power to forgive yourself and to forgive others. And dear friends, that's the power of Christian community. You can love no one else And you are going to be paralyzed in your Christian life if you constantly carry around the guilt of your own sin or the anger against those who have sinned against you. And so this message of righteousness outside of Christ is what we need to hear. And so Paul gets to the end of this chapter and he says this, But the words, quote, It was counted to him, to Abraham, righteousness, right standing before God, was counted to Abraham, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
Every single Christian believes that God can forgive somebody else, but God can't forgive them. And what Paul is saying is that at the very heart of what God has been doing throughout the history of redemption, it didn't start in the New Testament. It's the whole message of the Old Testament. That's why he goes back to Abraham as well. The whole message of God to His church is one message, that salvation comes to you through faith, not through you making amends. Salvation comes to you not through faith, and not through you changing your ways. You say, Richard, does that mean we don't have to change our ways? Absolutely you have to change your ways. But not to be saved, but you change your ways when you understand the radical nature that God has loved you even before you changed your ways. And He sent His Son for you. And He died when? When you repented? No, when you were enemies against Him. Hating Him. And dear friends, that's the gospel. Do you have it this morning? Do you want to know how relevant this is? I sat it we stood over here this morning, and I prayed that God would make this message relevant to me before I got up to preach it, because it wasn't that relative to me in, in that moment. Dear friends, we need to hear this message because our sin gets bigger. What we have not done for God and what we have done against God always is growing, seeking to grow bigger than what God has done for us. But Christianity, at the very heart of it, is not what you and I do for God, but it's what God has done for us. Do you understand that this morning and do you believe it? I love what Brendan Manning said. Brendan was a recovering alcoholic, um, and he, he said this. He said, To live by grace means to acknowledge that my whole life story, the light side and the dark side, in admitting my shadow side, <clears throat> excuse me, I learned who I am and what God's grace means. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ, and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Let me ask you this morning, is that your deepest understanding of yourself? That you are loved through Jesus Christ, and it's not because you've earned it, and not because you deserve it. If not, there's freedom, dear friends. There's life to be had. Would you believe it, and believe it again today if you've believed it before? That you might know the life of Jesus. That you might know the freedom of Jesus. That you might know the hope, and have the same hope that Abraham had who was great, not because he lived so great, but because he believed in a great God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We thank You for the simple message of the Gospel and what it has the power to do right here in our midst. God, would You just in this moment expose our sin of those things that we're trusting, of our practices, of our cultural practices, of, of our way of living, of our understanding of the faith, of our tradition, or, or whatever it is, oh God, would you expose what it is that we're trusting in so that we might trust solely and completely in Christ. Free us from our sacred cows, oh God, and may Jesus be the only sacred one to us. God, we thank you for life. We thank you for the gospel. And we give ourselves to you now. In Jesus' holy name, amen.